ಮಗ್ಯಾನಿಲಂದಸ್ಯಾಮಶ್ರೇಷ್ಠಮನುಮಾಪಿಸಿಪೋತ್ರಮತ್ರಾಶ್ರೂಪಂ ಪಂಚಕಲ್ಪತರೂಪಿಪಾಸಿಂಧುಪ್ಯಚಿಮುಕ್ತಕುಲೈರುಪಶ್ಯಾಮಪರಿತಂಹರಿಂಶ್ರ
sorry if I speak from the ideal, mm -hmm. but it's good to know what's the ideal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and that's not sometimes always easy, you know, to be willing to transformation, but actually listening is the first step in love. There is this Christian theologian, Paul Tillich, he will say the first step in love is listening. Mm -hmm. I will say basically the same. The first, the nine angas of bhakti begin with sravan, listening. Listening is not just someone's giving the class, and <laughs> I try to sit without falling asleep, that's sravan. <laughs> that's some level of sravan. Yeah, we will agree. Let's be generous. <laughs> we have to begin somewhere. But ultimately, listening means I'm there fully receptive, fully open to be uh, invaded by the message, whatever message I'm listening to. So, so that's the beginning of love, you know, trying to open ourselves to what what's coming from the other place and and be transformed. Love is the most transformative thing of all. Love is the goal of our lives, as we were talking a few weeks ago with some devotees. Is the para the paradox of love is that love is the thing we need the most, but sometimes love is the thing that we are terrified the most also. Because love implies full transformation. And sometimes we are not so willing to full transformation. And that's why the process is gradual. And Krishna is generous enough to say, you can start Chaturvida Abhijantam. You can approach me by just because of money and knowledge and position. And we will we will work our way through throughout the few years and times we will get to so eventually we can refine. Okay, I want love, and love means to be fully transformed, mm -hmm. to be willing to be fully transformed constantly. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting thing. No? The, 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 the adventure of love is constant transformation. As we were reading the other day, Chaitanya Charitamrita, Krishna Das Kavirash Goswami, he's saying, at every moment, at every nanosecond, let's be more precise, Krishna is becoming more beautiful. It's not that Krishna is beautiful or is the all-attractive and that has some top, some limit. All-attractive means you become more attractive at every moment. So the more attractive he becomes, the more the Brajavasis increase their love to serve that increased beauty. So every time Krishna is more beautiful and the devotees are loving him more, and Krishna Das Kavirash Goswami say, and the two of them are engaged in a competition in which none of them accept defeat. Krishna more beautiful. Rajabhas is more loving. But more loving means he's more beautiful. And that means they are more loving. And there's no end. That's what we call the spiritual world. So here we are training for entering into such a beautiful lifestyle, which is constantly expanding, evolving. So that's very beautiful. Can so, I ask a question on that again? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in our relationship with Krishna, so Krishna is constantly increasing in his beauty because of the love that he's receiving from his devotees. <coughs> and and it, it, it's that competition. So then, but that is individual to the person that he, he shows that, that exhibition of beauty, of of all attractiveness because when we come in in our relationship with Krishna we see him 
<laughs> Recalculating the GPSA. <laughs> so the all attractiveness that Krishna shows to his devotees is personal to the individual devotee. It's not like we come in with our relationship with Krishna and we're seeing boom the full the full glory of what he's having with the bridge vases. Mm -hmm. So it's individual what he is showing to each individual person in that moment in time. What will you say, someone will ask you that question? I'll say yes. I will say yes. You knew you knew the answer. Already. But you know I wanted to ask you it and then you said that. So okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah of cool. course the relationship of Krishna with each one of us is ultra personalized. That's why I call my book Radical Personalism, because mm -hmm. it means something radically personal, radically in the good sense, to the very root, is unique, specific with each person. No? That, that's, that's the beauty of it. And each devotee will see Krishna in a different way according to their love they have for mm -hmm. Krishna. Non-devotee non sees Krishna in the exact same way than other. It's not that the only difference is between those who are in Madhurya, Bhav, and Vatsali, and Sakya. No, no. Among inside of each of those camps, every individual devotee will see Krishna's beauty in a unique way. Mm. Because again, mm. the reciprocation is personal, individual. The devotee loves Krishna in a certain way, and Krishna will show himself to the devotee according to the unique flavor of that specific love that, that is irrepeatable, irrepeatable? Unrepeatable. Unrepeatable. Sorry. I will be exercising my english with you so beg <laughs> forgiveness for that mm -hmm. so that's beautiful for me no? when krishna yeah. says in the gita according to how you approach me i reciprocate mm -hmm. so that's not in a generic way it's a specifically uniquely according to how you come with your mood with your heart with your individuality i will respond with my own mood and heart and individuality in a very unique unrepeatable flavor mm -hmm. so that's he can do that. <laughs> That's why he is who he is. Rupa Goswami will say he's Akila Rasamrita Murti. He's quite capable of, of reciprocating with each heart in each mood in a very mm -hmm. most unique way. So, so that's important for us to also know when approaching him. That again, we are approaching a Srila Prabhupada will say supreme personality of Godhead. That's again for me, it's radically personal. Mm. He's not saying Krishna is Godhead. Krishna is the personality of God. Now let's be more specific. Mm -hmm. He's the supreme personality of God. That's very personal, very ultra personalized. <laughs> so he likes those relationships. I mean, relationships ideal, ideally have to be very personalized, unique, mm -hmm. specific. If we try to have a relationship with people from a very generic template, Okay, my mm -hmm. prayers goes to you, go to you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, by nature, relationships will force you into specificity, mm -hmm. so to say. You cannot keep the connections on a very generic mm -hmm. level. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And for becoming a specific, of course, that can be sometimes messy you know, to enter into the details. <laughs> but that's what life is about, relationships are about, and that's all the preparation of our heart to relate to the more specific and personalized person of all, which is the supreme person. <laughs> because again, if we do not 
uh, if we do not, how to say, learn to relate <clears throat> among each other in a personal way, probably we will be projecting that same way of relating to the divine. Mm -hmm. And that will, will not be very personal. It can be pretty impersonal sometimes. Or the opposite, one detail, sorry. Well, on the opposite, we may profess a very personal Krishna, this and that, but we will misreflect that in how we relate to each other sometimes in very depersonalized ways. And, and that reminds me, this section of the Bhagavatam, we were quoting this a few days ago in Switzerland, third canto, Kapila Dev is saying a few very strong words. <laughs> Uh, there are like 13 verses. I don't have the exact number now. I think it's chapter 9 and verses whatever. 10 to 20 something. He's speaking about Archana. And it's very interesting there. That, those are my favorite verses when someone asks, asks me, Maharaj, can you give me some instruction on, of, on Archana? I'll go there first. Mm -hmm. Because in those in that section, Kapila Dev is saying, if you worship the deity, but then you mistreat every other person, your worship is imitation. Mm. So that's my, my first lesson on Archana. It has nothing to do with mudras and technical stuff. It has to do with real life relationships. Mm. He even will say, if you make the least distinction among two human beings, that's like pouring ghee into ashes. No, like yagna is not going on there, something like that. So it's, and he uses some other strong words there, but making the point that if you love God, that has to be reflected in how you relate to everything else. Because there's a very nice verse in Chaitanya Charitamrita. And I'm going to your question one second. Mm -hmm. I have I keep you in mind. <laughs> Sorry. Mm -hmm. This is the danger with questions that I start saying something and so many triggers mm -hmm. on the way. So thank you for that. That's a nice danger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there is a verse quoted from the Vishnu Purana who says, Ananya Mamata Vishnu Prima Sangata Mamata, which basically means. If you have love for Vishnu, for God, that means that if you love him, you love whatever is in relation to him. The nature of love is you love whatever is in relation to the person you love. Sila Prabhupada will say, if you love me, love my dog. No? He will mm -hmm. give this example. If you love someone, whatever is in connection to that someone, I also love it. Mm -hmm. So if you love Krishna, whatever is in connection to Krishna, you should love it. And it happens to be that everything is in connection to Krishna. <laughs> so it is designed in such a way that you don't have an excuse to not love anything. You follow my if I say I love Krishna, immediately <laughs> you're in a big mess, if you will. <laughs> because you have to, if you really love him, that will be reflected in how you relate to everything, not even everyone, but everything, because everything is in connection to that. Not to make anyone feel discouraged here, but just for us to understand how not to cheat ourselves in our relationship with the divine and how we can have a nice like barometer to see, okay, where is my relationship? Also, you know, we can begin in the immediate in the immediacy of the daily life. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's just continuing that the specific relationship. So as Jeevas, mm -hmm. of course, we have the association of devotees um, as Jeevas. This about approaching that specific relationship with Krishna through the Brajvasis, through the eternally liberated devotees. Mm -hmm. right? This is where somewhere in there I get 
sometimes a little bewildered or confused. It's, it's, it's like Prabhupada would say, she'll probably say, um, just you know, approach the residents of Vrindavan because they they will be there for us as as devotees. Mm -hmm. But at the moment we're here as Jiva. Mm -hmm. But we need we need that association. They they will carry us closer mm -hmm. to Krishna. Mm -hmm. So it's like that's that's what's growing right within us and from the seed of bhakti where where we become accessible to those Rajvasis, mm. the eternal devotees. Mm. Could you maybe say something more about that? Because yeah. somewhere in there I get kind of <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll try to say something, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, what you are talking about basically has to do with the idea of Raganuka Bhakti, which in the sense that Raganuka Bhakti means to, to serve following the footsteps of the Brajbasis, of the Ragatmikas. And I don't want to become too technical, so I won't talk to you with too much Sanskrit. I will torture a little bit, but not so much. <laughs> so, of course, the goal of life is to, in our particular tradition, our focus, our face of divinity that we will want to serve forever is Vrindavan, Maya, Navadivistir as well. There are no, there's no difference between the two actually. So, Srila Prabhupada, as you quote him, as Rupa Goswami mentions, the idea is to <clears throat> that Bhava Lipshunakriya Braja Loka no Sarata, says Rupa Goswami. Sa Seva Sadaka Rupena Sida Rupena Chatra. That's my doses of Sanskrit torture. That's it. <laughs> so he's saying we are to follow in the footsteps on the, of the Brajavasis. Well, also, something important that I will say to make it practical and realistic to us, because of course also we are uh, prevented, do not, I don't know, do not imitate uh, something that is beyond your reach or do not, I don't know, yeah, do not imitate, do not follow the footsteps by dressing with sari as a male, I'm saying in this case, <laughs> and so on. So one substantial way of following the Brajavasis is how they appear to us in the Gaur Lila. Because in the Gaur Lila, we have all the inhabitants of Vrindavan appearing as sadhakas, as devotees, as practitioners. Of course, they are high caliber practitioners, they are eternally perfected. But somehow, I will say it's maybe more relatable to us to see them practicing and giving an example that we can relate to where we are. No? Like if you go to the life of the Goswamis, it may be more relatable the life of Rupa Goswami than the life of Rupa Manjari in certain stage of your practice. At certain stage you will connect with both and you will and so on and so forth. But it, it all begins generally through the doorway of of Gorlila. No? So so I I will and of course Gorlila means not only those eternal associates who served Mahaprabhu a few hundred years ago, but the extension of that Gorlila <laughs> in the form of Acharyas and Purampura who somehow show this example and mood. So by connection with them, gradually again, we connect with the eternal associates of Vrindavan as they appear in Gorlila by imbibing that properly while while simultaneously hearing about Brajalila. No? All that should be done gradually. No? But because sometimes I've seen sometimes devotees, I don't know, they get a little bit too, let's say, fanatical. Why not? <laughs> in many directions, we can be fanatical, but in this case, I mean like less insisting too much about just just hear about Braja Lila. That's a high good thing, so that's what we should be doing. But I would say 
that something is the highest doesn't mean that you should be doing that. No, <laughs> that's the highest. Are you ready for the highest? No, so, so you have to also be be realistic, because sometimes too much insistence on, on exclusive Lila narrations can be very interesting, evasive device <laughs> for not dealing with some unresolved human issues that we may have. Do you follow my point? So I, I, let's talk about the highest. But probably, you know, as Srila Bhaktivedanta Dev Goswami will say, it's better to talk about basic things in a deep way <laughs> than about higher things in a very shallow way or in an evasive way, what to speak of that. Unconsciously, we may be doing that, but resorting to the highest topics, to not having to deal with more, how to say, embarrassing layers of reality that we need to deal with so we can gradually enter the fully human realm. No? Like I mentioned in my book, the Lila of Vrindavan, the Lila of Naudip is Nara Lila. Nara Lila means it's divine and human at the same time. So if I'm not humanly in place, my humanity is not in place, how can I enter that Lila where humanity is fully in place? Because in the Lila of Krishna, in the Lila of Mahaprabhu, humanity is showing its perfect expression, being totally spiritualized. It's spiritual, but there is humanity there. So if, I, if I'm if i not fully human, how much I can reach that Nar Lila? So it's important that we have our humanity in place with the idea of attaining ultimately the realm of Raj. Yeah. yeah. Some ideas. Again, each question deserves its own separate visit to the UK, not even one lecture, <laughs> no? but thank you for that. And since we mentioned that point, I may touch upon the topic that officially I, am, I was thinking to share with you, but of course, officially we will go wherever the topic <laughs> takes us. No? I'm not here to to manipulate Harikata, I'm hopefully to be manipulated by the, the, narr the narration of, of, of the topic, so whatever we have to end, let's go there. <clears throat> I wanted to share a few words on the topic of fitting in versus belonging deeply to in Krishna consciousness, which is a, to a topic that I mentioned in my recent book, because it's a topic that I've I've gone through myself personally. Uh, my the writing of my book was just kind of the the byproduct of certain experiences I've gone through recently, so. So it's a very, for me, it's a very important point no? to, to establish the difference between what does it mean to belong deeply to Krishna consciousness, what does it mean to fit in. I hope you already feel the difference between the two words. No? Because I'm saying that because sometimes even inadvertently we may think of the two as synonyms. How we may use the words to refer one, one word to refer to the other. And that's <clears throat> tricky because the language we use makes us think in a certain way and makes us see reality in a certain way. So if for my in my language, for me, fitting in and belonging is the same thing. Probably in my mind, it may be the same and how we relate to others may be the same. And that can be problematic to say the least. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, personally, I want to enter into the, 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 the drama of my auth unauthorized autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> But basically, and no, it's not only first time, many times, because that's how life happens. You go through certain crises 
And crisis is not a bad word, just in case. If you even study the word crisis, means decisive point. Like you're taken to a situation outside of what's usual, and you have to, again, going back to the GPS, recalibrate, recalculate how to continue from here. And realizing Mm -hmm. I cannot continue in the same way I was continuing yesterday. I cannot continue that way anymore. Something, some shift happened that does not allow me to, mm. no, to put play to the same mm. template I was mm. using for the last 25 years or whatever. So I think it happens to all of us in different ways, in moments in life, and it's important that we understand. Okay, I may need to adjust my journey, so to say. Mm. And the question comes: So how can I? My question was, okay, I, I want to continue being a devotee. I'm not, I don't have any project of, <laughs> of leaving this, leaving my vows, my anything. But I cannot continue as I was continuing before. Because again, as I mentioned, some things happen. So it's not working in the same way it was working before, which is okay. Again, that's not a problem, although we may feel it as such. That's one sense part of the progress. <laughs> Because if it always works in the same way forever, maybe it means you are not going anywhere. <laughs> but when you are making progress, you are you have to make constant adjustments, basically, mm-hmm. in the journey. So that happened to me a few times. Again, I don't want to go into talking about myself. But the question was, okay, how do I kind of keep Krishna consciousness relevant and relatable to me? I cannot just be a, how to say, a member in name externally doing, but I want to belong. <clears throat> Again, I, I I I don't want to just fit in into just like some box, so to say. You know? And I, I was in a particular situation where it was like outside of the box. You have heard this this expression, you know? outside of the box, which means you do not you do not belong to any of the usual labels. That's interesting experience, I can tell you. <laughs> People start to ask you like, okay, so which mission do you belong? And I like, I have no answer to that question. <laughs> and you start to see like, oh my, like the, the, the Google in the mind of the person like searching for some, <laughs> some reply to, to that situation and Google collapsing, no reply to your search, sorry, sorry. <laughs> So those are interesting moments where you do not fit any of the usual boxes and maybe a new box has to manifest if you want to call it like that. But what would they... be the usual boxes? What would be the usual boxes of fitting in? I mean, I'm not condemning if someone is in some of those no, social no, boxes, no, just no, in no, case. How does that normally look? How does those boxes normally look? Like you have ISKCON, you have... Yeah, you have a few answers for that question. No? <laughs> <laughs> At least you have a few options. <laughs> Which, of course, also that's a separate topic altogether. But and it was funny because uh, today or yesterday, not yeah, yesterday, I shared some flyer of of a, I have a podcast on Saturdays generally and and. I invite different people. And this Saturday, I'm inviting one devotee called Bhima Karma. Mm-hmm. So we'll be talking on seeing, grieving, and healing abuse. Mm-hmm. So he himself posted that on his own um, 
Facebook profile. And another place, some maybe I posted, and it was funny, a few places people was asking, like, <clears throat> so who is this Swami Padmanava? Not this. Who is I mean it was it was not bad mood, it was just who is this guy? I don't know him, basically. <laughs> but it was funny, I don't know if funny, but <laughs> sometimes the implication of the question basically is who is his guru and world, which mission does he belong? And for me, it's like that's not a reply to a question about who are you? No, because even if I have an answer to that question, <laughs> or if I don't, <laughs> still I am someone separate from that answer to those questions. You follow my point? Now, if I if I ask who is Jamon, and someone says he lives in the UK and drives a whatever blue car, blue car. <laughs> okay, that says something, but that's not who she is no. so it's funny for me sometimes how even unconsciously the structure of our not all of course but sometimes the structure of the conversation is like who are you miss which is your box in one sense mm. no where do you belong and and sometimes i've had that experience i remember it was tragic comical but i have been in the streets walking and and someone some other devotee will cross me and will ask me, oh, so who is your guru? Mm-hmm. And I can feel like depending on my answer, the conversation stops here or continues. Mm-hmm. No? And for me, it's like that's impersonalism, basically. I mean, we are not t- talking like individuals. It's just like tell me your tribe, and I know if you are dangerous or not, legal or not. <laughs> If I have, if I, I'm allowed to have a conversation with you or not, and for me that's, I don't know, so shallow, so so far away from the depths of our tradition, and again the radical personalism of our tradition, which is so much about being personal, not only with Krishna again, but <laughs> for me sometimes it's a little bit like sad to begin with that we have such a richness of personalism, but sometimes we treat each other so poorly. In our community, I mean, I'm not generalizing and saying everyone is that, but just and this doesn't happen only in our community, just in case, <laughs> no? because I like to also interact with people from other traditions, and we talk and I mention to them what's going on in our community. And like, oh, we have our own version of that one. <laughs> they check their boxes. Oh, we have that one. Okay, so it's kind of a thing of the times. So. Anyhow, the point is that I think it's important that from whatever, I'm not talking only about from, from myself, but from wherever each of us are in, in our spiritual journey, that we can feel that we belong and not just that we have to fit in, you know, to be accepted, to be part of, but that we can belong, which means we can be ourselves and that we don't need to be something else to be part of something because how much I can be a part of something if I have to compromise who I am. <laughs> That's kind of an oxymoron. It's self-contradictory. So and we see in life, in the world, how people do whatever it takes to be part of something. Even if you're in a gang or things like that, they are willing to go through all these initiation rites, so to say, to feel part of the group, so to say. So that's that's telling, but that can be dangerous uh, because we we may be able to compromise many things just to fit in. 
which is not belong, remember. <laughs> I want to make that point to begin with, that fit in implies compromising your identity and, and, and not being actually accepted for who you are with all the messiness that we may still carry. And actual belonging is, I am who I am, and I am my journey of purification, but I am accepted from day one unconditionally. Because that's how Krishna is accepting us. As we will talk, Krishna is accepting us unconditionally. Now, then we will work the details of, on the journey, but to begin with, we are accepted unconditionally. Krishna is, putting, Krishna is not put, putting a long list of, first you need this, 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 and then I, I'll think about it. <laughs> that's, that's, that goes against the idea of costless mercy. Unconditional love means that's already there, even before you did anything. That's mind-blowing, basically, if you think. I mean, already loved by Krishna, even from the time I didn't know there was something called Krishna. No? I mean, already accepted fully by him <laughs> from day zero, so to say. Wow. The more you, you become, we become aware of that, the more we can really belong. Because I realized, wow, I don't need to, to make a performance in front of Krishna so he accepts me finally. No. <laughs> you were going to ask something, Karnesh? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. going to preface it by saying I'm really not so sure how clear the question is, but there is a deep question in there somewhere that That's needs, it. needs That's answered. It. So, when you talk about fitting in, like, I see different layers of that. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe starting off with trying to fit in to your community that you're in. Mm -hmm. because, so you want that acceptance. So mm -hmm. that's one level of fitting in mm. as opposed to belonging. But then like another deeper layer is why you want to fit in. Like, because you think, <clears throat> you believe at some point that that's the only way to please Krishna. That mm. so it's not just a social thing, but you think if you feel like your spiritual life depends on on that fitting in, and if these group of people aren't pleased with you, mm. then you're not going to make progress mm. you to please the devotees. Mm. So that's where it gets complicated because you, <laughs> you can drop to some level, you can drop caring whether people think this, that, or the other about you. But it's when you start to wonder, well, these are Krishna's devotees, mm -hmm. and so what if they're not happy with me? So that's, and then there's one more, <laughs> one more level of, I don't know if I can express it properly, which is even if you get past that, then there's like, you've got to fit in with Krishna. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know, so you just said there that he always loves us unconditionally. But I suppose my question is, if I start to kind of feel like I'm breaking out of previous modes of how I used to be a devotee, and it's becoming more personal for me, but then I still have to make sure that that's actually okay with Krishna and I'm not just actually going off track. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Actually, you know, I'm fitting in with, with yeah. Krishna. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Good. <laughs> but was that a question? No. It was more like a comment, <laughs> which is okay. I mean, I'm not just, lim I would just want to make clear if you I had a question that, okay. so I addressed that. Maybe the question bit then is could you say something about? if we aren't getting the favor of the devotees you know hmm. and how we how we see that in relation to pleasing krishna through pleasing the vaishnavas hmm. and if we, and then the second part of the question is 
you know, when we do start to feel ourselves, maybe having become more individual in this path, mm -hmm. have to be sure that we're not just making mm -hmm. it up and mm -hmm. you know, going our own way and that actually, you know, Krishna is happy with mm -hmm. where we're going. Yeah. Okay. Fasten your seatbelt, please. <laughs> great question. Really great question. Thank you for both. Yeah. Yeah. The first one is interesting, and it can be it can get tricky in the sense of um, how to say. Of course, we we learn that that's in shastra the importance of the Vaishnavas and how we we connect with the the divine. Through the devotees, in the sense that without a devotee, probably none of us will know that there's someone called Krishna. Basically, generally, you won't figure that out by yourself. Like one morning, it's like, yeah, I think God has to be like that. You come with a whole your own Krishna book suddenly, no? <laughs> so that's so important. Sadhu Sangha is, is the root cause of bhakti, as it said in Chaitanya Charitamrita. But I'm thinking in the about the trickiness of that in the sense that when we say, so your relationship with Krishna depends on your relationship with the devotees, and sometimes it kind of becomes like, how to say, weaponized in the sense of, let's say if some devotees, because we say with the devotees, yes, but there are different levels of devotees. Mm -hmm. And let's say that some devotee misbehaves, it happens sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you have a relationship with that devotee, but that devotee misbehaves, and you kind of react accordingly to that misbehavior. You may take a distance or object to that, and then comes the weaponization of the word apparat, for example. Mm -hmm. You are being offensive to that person, and because of that, mm -hmm. Krishna is not pleased with you, mm -hmm. and you have no connection with him. And of course, that can happen if, in the sense of if you are really a monster and are attacking all the Vaishnav viciously, which I hope that's not the case. <laughs> I don't think we are on this journey for that. <laughs> but in general, that's not happening. So, But sometimes I've heard this idea that, okay, you, <clears throat> whatever, some even elder devotee distanced from you or rejected you or criticized you and you are immediately out of the out of the loop, out of the plug. Krishna is totally and you follow my point. No? So I'm saying that because sometimes that can be weaponized and abused and create so much guilt trip or shame. And when actually probably you are doing what you have to do. <laughs> but sometimes in the environment, some things may happen in the name of. No. Which again, this does not do away with the principle that. The connection with the devotees is so crucial because they personify love for Krishna, so to say. And our goal is that. Our goal is not Krishna. Our goal is love for Krishna. We don't want Krishna without love for Krishna. I don't want Krishna just to be a, my servant or like a puppet. I want love for Krishna. Even without Krishna. So to say, I mean, of course, if there's love for Krishna, Krishna is there. But my point is that devotees are more interested in loving Krishna even without, I mean, in separation of Krishna, than having Krishna without love for him. Just like having him like appear in front of me to entertain me for a while or something. So in that sense, the devotees are, yeah, are very important. And 
but the way that they are they have to be important is by us again not fitting in going mm -hmm. back to the fitting in mm -hmm. but by deeply belonging you no know, i mean sadhu sangha is a very how to say a very intimate transparent connection it's not a formality you know? sadhu sangha is not just um, let's meet each other on sunday feast and and like do whatever we have to do in a little bit that's sadhu, sadhu sangha kijai Rupa Goswami described what Sadhu Sangha, the Dati Prati Grinati Guhyama Kyati Prichati. It's a sharing of hearts. It's, an, it's being vulnerable a lot. <laughs> yeah, I talk about that also in my book, the importance of vulnerability, the, the importance of exposing to one another with trust. No? Sri Rupa Goswami will say Sadhu Sangha is Swajatya, Snigdasya, and Swatavar. Swajatya so means you have to have deep connection with people who are like-minded, no? similar species, so to say. And snigdasya, snigda means affectionate. The relation has to be affectionate. No? It cannot be like too imposed and too rigid and too like, like motivated by fear. Again, that has to do with fitting in. Sometimes we try to fit in because we are fear. If I do not fit in, this happens. But if I do not this, they will be like that or like that. So <clears throat> belonging has more to do with trust and love and openness. And as I mentioned, <clears throat> the importance of being accepted. As Krishna is loving us unconditionally, a real Vaishnava will be representing that same spirit, basically. Now, a Vaishnava shouldn't be a, like a threatening figure in your life. We were talking with Sam a little bit today about that because the first two days, every time I went down from the stairs, he would stand up and Jai Maharaj. And I'm like, you don't need to do that. I mean, sit down. it's okay. I mean, if it comes from your heart and you feel joyful to do that, I will. I don't want to repress that either. But don't feel like, oh, Maharaj is coming. So I, Swami is entering the room. It's my duty to be nervous. <laughs> like no. the standard of Vaishnava etiquette in front of a sannyas is to enter into anxiety because I don't know what to do no. and I may be chastised that's, that's not how it should be no. that's not how it happens so so, so again our, our connection with, with Vaishnava should be in terms of yeah, belonging and trust and affection because if we are still trying to fit in and I know that Impulses in all of us, generationally, from who knows how, how time ago, how long time ago. But if we are just conceiving relationships in terms of fitting in, it's kind of like, how to say, we are very afraid of being seen still. No? We are afraid of, if I show who I am, what will happen? So better mm -hmm. I show my best makeup, so I fit in. Oof, they didn't see who I am. Oof, such a relief. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's not Sadhu Sangha. Sadhu Sangha doesn't mean to be relieved that they didn't know who you actually are. <laughs> Sadhu Sangha belonging means the relief of knowing that they know who you are. And they, despite that, they love you, so to say. <laughs> or because of that, let's put it like that. Even because of your messiness, they love you. Not, it's not so much, I love you despite how disaster you are. 
I love you, especially because of that. My unconditional love has that has that merit. That's in the, the, the psychology of mercy. You know, like they say, Nityananda Prabhu is especially inclined toward the most fallen. No? He hears words the most fallen. He feels some like partiality in that direction. Oh, of course, this is not an excuse. Like, let's continue falling down more and more and more and more. So we get more mercy of Nityananda. <laughs> that, that's not what I'm saying. Just in case, don't do not edit the class and say Maharaj is like... So something like that in connection to the first question. I forgot, totally forgot the second one, sorry. No, if I can catch the essence of it again, just something like um, if we start to feel a bit more confident that we're... Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah thank you. Yeah, I, I came back. Yeah. So, yeah, that has a lot to do with the idea of individuation. I, it's a term I use in my book also. There's a whole chapter about that. Actual individuation is a term originally coined by Carl Jung, which basically means you're an individual, but you have to develop your individuality. Because we are individuals, but how much of an individual we are, how much of our individuality has been is blossoming in, in its uniqueness or how much we are individuals because we are individuals by nature. We cannot but be. <laughs> but sometimes we are not very individuals ourselves. We are very much like whatever everyone says, I go for it. I don't have my own, I don't know, thoughts, feelings, criteria, which again, there is a place for that. As I like to say in the class, there is a place for kindergarten bhakti. It's okay. We are not demonizing. It's beautiful in its own way. No, like we, we are still um, using pacifier, no, so to say, you know, like learning to crawl. Those, those are the beginning steps of bhakti, and we may be fanatical. No, you have your license to be fanatical for a few years. <laughs> no, like narrow-mindedness. Like Prabhupada said, no, it's like the beginning of the first blossom of, of the bhakti seed. And it's so tender, so fragile, so easily affected by anything that you have to put some how to say fence some fence thank you so you grow and you think okay whatever is happening inside this fence is the real thing there's nothing outside this that's basically what we call fanaticism of course when you grow beyond that you realize oh my gosh there's a whole world of diversity but you are already rooted enough to deal with that so you have your fence stage to think like, okay, and to not think too much for yourself, to basically do copy-paste, so to say. No? Mm -hmm. Which, again, it's there's a place for that. And there's a place to quote our acharyas, of course. It's so important. But also to know our acharyas want us to be thinking for ourselves as well. Famous statement by Prabhupada, I want all my disciples to be independently thinking people. Well, that's challenging, of course. <laughs> so, so that's a service we have to offer. No? That's not so much I'm deviating from from the norm. I, I have to develop my individuality, my criteria, my thinking as a service to my guru, to Prabhupada, to the parampara, to Krishna. That will be give Krishna more pleasure. Krishna wants a very <clears throat> specific unique offering from our part. Mm -hmm. At one point, Krishna will ask you, 
how do you want to serve me? And at that point, it may not be enough to say, however you want. Krishna said, no, no, no. Tell me what you want. What's your taste? Again, this may not be that moment yet, but at one point, one will have to offer that individual unique. You know? Like when Krishna is with his friends, they're having picnic, you know, famous Brahma Vimohan Lila before Brahma's foreheads are spinning like crazy in bewilderment. <laughs> Krishna is with his friends having picnic. And each of the friends have their own taste. No, it's not like Krishna asks them and said, We like whatever you like the most, Krishna. <clears throat> no, no. They have their own tastes. And Krishna may have a different taste. And it's okay. So it's important that we that we develop our our individuality as a soul. Even we have a personality, and our personality, one may say, is acquired by nature, by the influence of the gunas. We could say that technically, because I mean, in, in all our previous lifetimes, in different bodies, different even species, not that we had the exact same personality, mm -hmm. no. But in this lifetime, we have a certain personality, and that personality can be developed in a healthy way and that healthy personality, healthy humanity, sattva, we may call it, that can be fully spiritualized by bhakti. And we can offer that to Krishna. So that's an important point that I also try to make always. Although our goal is transcendental and spiritual, we have to be also developed on a human level, emotional level, psychological. All those layers have to be integrated. It's not that no, I'm only interested in transcending this world. Um, but transcending this, what does it mean transcending this world? Like an evacuation plan? Huh? I have to leave this place as soon as possible. That's not our goal. Our goal is not mukti. Our goal is not leaving this world. Our goal is prem, loving Krishna. When you love Krishna, you no longer know where you are. Basically, you don't care. <laughs> you love Krishna. I mean, so many verses in the scriptures about what, what does Mahaprabhu says in Shikshastaka, the fourth verse. He says, I don't care for all the things that belong to this world, but he even said, I don't care for living this world either. He said, Mama Janmani Janmani Shwari Bhavatad Bhakti Rahit. The only thing I care for is bhakti, birth after birth, which implies if I have to come here over and over again, I don't care. Because I can love and serve Krishna wherever I am. So, so my point with this is again going back to the point. We are trying to offer our individuality to Krishna, and, and it's important that we we become again human enough. We have we develop a healthy relationship with our bodies. We develop a healthy we culture, what I like to call emotional intimacy. In other words, we are not afraid of our emotions. We are not stigmatizing them because it's easy to label everything as Maya. <laughs> but you tell me what's the result of that. Generally, you end up pretty dysfunctional. So it's not about labeling everything as Maya, but actually seeing everything as something that is potentially offer, offerable to Krishna. So we choose which is our orientation, 
do I see everything as an obstacle, a smile, something that wants me to fall down or whatever <laughs> lens you want to wear? Or do I see everything in Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati Thakur's words as potential paraphernalia to be offered to Bhagavan? You choose, no? You choose. But our scriptures say that every atom is inhabited by, by God. So if every atom is inhabited by God, how much you can condemn matter? I'm, maybe I'm going to another topic here, but one point, and then I saw the two hands. I, I'm remembering just in case. So you know, you don't need to be like this for a few moments. Because <laughs> the other day I was giving a class and I didn't clarify that. And one Vaishnava was like this, like for 10 minutes. I was so sorry. <laughs> the hand was like. <laughs> so, so I think part of developing our individual self, which of course is very important, how to know if that's not getting us astray. I would say, I mean, you judge the tree by its fruits. I mean, if you really see that, of course, with this, I don't want to overemphasize, okay, you just be balanced emotionally, psychologically, and that's all. No? And you neglect all your sadhana because of your visit to the, you're doing therapy or whatever, no? <laughs> Because some people may need to do therapy just in case. I mean, I like the quote, chant and be happy. But also I like to add a parenthesis between chant and be happy and add a few things that most of us need to do for that equation to work. No? Or like Deva Madhava in Michigan, he, he likes to say, he has his own version of the chant and be happy. Maybe those who were in Michigan learned that one. It's a kind of initiation if you visit Ypsilanti. <laughs> I will say, it's chant and be honest. <laughs> no? Then we talk about happiness, but they first chant and be honest. And sometimes being honest is not so happy. <laughs> no, it's like honest. I have to recognize, acknowledge this, like heal this. No? Sometimes we may have unresolved human trauma. And, and that gets in the way sometimes of our practice. If it's not properly... Acknowledged first, mm -hmm. healed, and we just no no no. I will just want to transcend. Sometimes we first need to descend, mm -hmm. <laughs> no, before trying to ascend and transcend. Let's ground ourselves a little bit and be more realistic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I would say that if one is honestly trying to do that, I mean, <clears throat> there is no. I mean, one will receive very clear insight and confirmation that I'm not going straight and using this as an excuse not to give myself to Krishna. So I will say not better not to add too much layers of extra concern about maybe I'm deviated. I mean, one has to really be honest and introspective and Krishna is in the heart also. Mm -hmm. The Guru is there also, so he will be confirming. Oh. Who first? Two hands were there. I think uh, I think you started to cover and and explain this next question I have, but just around being personal, developing your personality, and being comfortable in that and offering that to Krishna. But how to make the distinction between an anarta that you need to work on, and you start speaking about it now. Some people need to go and actually work and shift some anartas out. So what is how to make the distinction between personality and individuality? 
and then what is in the narta because even some devotees they have fiery tempers but they're using krishna's service and mm-hmm. how, to, how to just make a distinction <laughs> what's an anarta what isn't an anarta, an anarta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah thank you for the question well yeah the word anarta of course technically speaking the meaning of the word anarta arta means like value an anarta means false value so that's an interesting point no? false value means like i'm seeing some value where it's not i'm projecting value in something i mean everything has value but i'm projecting a false <laughs> sense of value in something like how do you say in english like um <laughs> Con- ca- no counterfeit currency oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah okay yeah. yeah that's the word it came first but i doubted that so you hit you think oh this has value and you go to the market you say give me this and you end up in jail after five minutes it's like what happened here <laughs> no so you try to purchase something with a false sense of value if you will no? so so an art uh, many times Many times an artist and Bhakti Nautakur will say that, which is interesting, that one of the main an artist is Tatpavi Brahma, which means to, to be in illusion about what's reality. So when you know what's reality, basically there is no place for an artist. When you see who is Krishna, how everything is connected to Krishna, everything kind of falls into place, falls into context. So even if you have whatever, some impulses let's put it like that <laughs> uh, they can be expressed in a way that is not an anarta to give you an example because sometimes we may think hey anger no anger is one someone may think anger is an anarta so the conclusion if you think like that is it's not good to be angry and if i'm anger it's not good first and probably second i shouldn't be expressing that because mm-hmm. it's an anarta so probably the end result of that is I swallow my anger and probably it becomes a worse anarta. <laughs> <laughs> now you have repressed anger, which is even more no, ingrained. <laughs> so the fall my book, because in, on, on the contrary, and, and I have here in my book I quoted something. Can I can I share a few? I don't want I don't want to go too much, but with quotes, but uh, I have to find it first, but the chapter on individuation, I'm quoting something from Prabhupada on, on anger, and he shows that there is a place for anger. Uh, it's a purport to the Bhagavads. Mm-hmm. Give me one second. Well, let's hear this one. Yeah, this is a good one. This Prabhupada's commentary to I have the I have to see the exact quote in the footnotes. That's for later. So he says, depending on our level of spiritual advancement or consciousness, we can control emotions, but we should not deny them. No? So if I'm angry, I'm angry. I'm angry. No, I cannot say no, no, I'm not angry. <laughs> Or I shouldn't be angry. Okay, you shouldn't, but you are. No, if you want, you. Sh- I, mean, I wouldn't even say you shouldn't, but at least say that you acknowledge that you are angry. Because I've seen so many times that we don't want to reach that point that I am angry. 
because who knows which is the correlation we make with that, no? It means I have an art, it means this, it means that, and it's not good to be angry, angry or whatever. So he says, we should not deny them. And then he says something even more shocking. Anger will continue even in the liberated stage. So this is not an excuse, of course, okay. <laughs> so, Dhruva Maharaj is becoming angry, overwhelmed with grief. And so on. What's not incompatible? Incompat incompatible? Incompatible, sorry, with his position as a great devotee. It is a misunderstanding that a devotee should not be angry or overwhelmed by lamentation, and so on. Again, he's not giving Prabhupada here is not giving him license to okay be as angry as you want. That's great. Prabhupada's giving blessings. No, that's not the point. But he's mentioned there you can be angry and learn to express that in a healthy way. As I mentioned in my book, there are not bad emotions. Because sometimes we think bad or good emotions. They're not bad emotions. They're bad things we do with our emotions. So you can be angry and express your anger in a healthy way. Which doesn't mean, of course, getting resentful and ultra-violent and breaking everything. Mean, but there's a way to channel that particular energy uh, or not. Or there's a way to express that in a healthy, unhealthy way or not to express that at all, which is another variety of unhealthy mm -hmm. emotional expression. So I'm saying all this in relation to your question, because again, we sometimes think to be angry is an anartha. Not necessarily. I would say to express anger in an unhealthy way, that's an anartha or to not express anger is an art. But to express anger in a healthy way, mm -hmm. Prabhupada is giving us permission to do so. <laughs> it's necessary. It will, it will allow you to be in contact with your, your emotions because if you lose contact with your emotions, that's, that's a tricky scenario. So, so I, will I will try to describe an art in, in that way, like, we can have different impulses and and tendencies. And when we don't know how to dovetail them properly in bhakti, that becomes an anartha. But when we acknowledge them, let's say emotions, impulses, and try to adjust them accordingly, for me, that doesn't become an anartha anymore. As Prabhupada is saying, there is a place for that even in liberated life. What is speaking in our life as a sadhaka? To give you another example, which probably is may, maybe controversial, but anyhow, I'm already. <laughs> <laughs> but I talk about that in my book. I made a whole podcast of that, so everyone knows that. Sex, sex life, for example. As you may know, some, some, some ideas will be, okay, sex life is only for procreation, and another expression of that is basically illicit, is bad, ontologically an obstacle. Uh, I don't agree with that. And not only I don't agree with that, but that's not supported by Shastra. Shastra says different things. Prabhupada says different things. <laughs> Although in time, sometimes historically certain standards are established, but again, we are persons, so every standard has to be adjusted to each particular situation. Uh, and as I was talking the other day with a 
I'm saying this because sometimes, okay, sex life without procreation is an anarta. Sometimes that's the label. But I will say personally, I mean, there is a, a, an, an expression of sex life in a committed relationship where both parts are, the sexual expression is a byproduct of their deep connection and intimacy. That's that's very different from a selfish, exploitative interaction, so to say. Because sometimes we put everything in the same box, <laughs> and that's not not accurate. <clears throat> and as I was talking in a podcast a few weeks ago with a Christian monk, the two of us were talking about sex life. Being... <laughs> <laughs> So he was telling me actually, real actual deep sexual interaction implies not only physical nakedness but internal nakedness. You have to be really open to the other person in, in emotionally. In That's very hard. <laughs> That's not so easy. <laughs> it's easier to force yourself into celibacy, so to say. <laughs> but to have a deeply committed, open, vulnerable. Relationship intimacy. Intimacy again is not a bad word, although it may be taboo for some. Uh, that is not easy. That requires lots of inner work to really be present for the other person in a deep place. And, and that's what the ultimately sexual interaction, healthy one, apart from procreation, also has to do. And that has been supported in Shastra by Bhakti Notakura. I don't want to torture you with quotes, mm -hmm. but that's there. <laughs> so, so that's for me another way of explain the idea of an art you know, or, or regarding me I'm a sannyasi you know, I'm a monk I've been a monk for the last 24 years so <clears throat> in practical terms I have no clue what sexual life is physically speaking <laughs> but still I have what we may call Kriya Shakti in Sanskrit which is like creative energy which expresses itself as sexual activity in physical terms but in other words ways as well and I have to do what to do with that energy myself. Mm -hmm. I have to express my creativity because sexual life is about creativity, connection, intimacy. And I have as a monk, I have to know how to express all those things also. Mm -hmm. If I do not do that, I become dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a pretty number of them. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an anarta. That's an anarta. If a couple in a committed relationship is expressing sexuality in a vulnerable, open, deep way, I don't want label that as an anarta. Mm. But if you are dressing saffron, <laughs> but you are repressing or denying or escaping, that's an anarta. You mm. follow my point. Mm. So some ideas, that connection, mm. I hope that helps. <laughs> we had a question behind. Yeah. <laughs> Marge, it's about um, going back to your topic about belonging and fitting in. Yeah. Um, so there's so many different sampradayas and there's so many different denominations and each sampradaya will think that their way is the best way. So you'll have like the Shiva worshippers, the Brahma worshippers, the Shia, like Shiva Vaishnavas and Narayan. Mm -hmm. And so... How does one who's, because I was born in this movement and I was raised, how do I tell the difference between feelings of belonging versus just being exposed from a young age mm -hmm. and just making friends? Mm -hmm. and we just 
do this together because mm-hmm. I can put myself in someone else's shoes who's a Shiva worshiper mm-hmm. from a young boy mm-hmm. and they'll think their method is the right way mm-hmm. and it feels like if they've grown up like that and they turn to Krishna consciousness it feels like what they've done for their whole life is a waste of time <laughs> and that's why they wouldn't come to Krishna consciousness because they feel mm. they would have wasted their time so essentially how do you tell feelings of belonging versus exposure mm-hmm. yeah thank you great question mm-hmm. those questions are the ones who come from second generation devotees <laughs> Yeah, so a few things that come to mind. The first thing that comes to my mind is, and you tell me whenever we are done, because I don't, I don't know your timings. I don't want to. Um, I mean, I can. We can continue. Yeah. You let me. I have. You know me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's let's just you know say a time because I don't want to just interrupt. So, what do you think for Prashadam? Something quarter, quarter, it's five to eight now, quarter past eight, 20 more minutes. I mean, I'm okay, I can continue. I mean, yeah. I'm not <laughs> <laughs> half past eight. I don't have dinner, so it's not a problem yeah. for me. So I'm not half hungry. Eight. Yeah, <laughs> we'll check in at half past eight and we'll see how it's all going. Yeah, if, okay. if I see each one like biting each other, miss, <laughs> bring fresh out immediately. <laughs> Cannibalism is about to manifest. <laughs> So first thing that comes to mind is this idea of care. Each one will think their tradition is the best. And of course, that makes sense because if you don't think you're, what you are doing is the best for you, then why are you doing it? No. If you are convinced that something else is the best for you, what you're doing while you are here, that's it. You have to have it clear. This is the best for me. No. It's not, because if not, you, you you become a dangerous fanatical. You are trying to impose on everyone. This is the best for all of you. So all of you should stop doing what you are doing and join my tribe. And we know that mentality, what's the result of that mentality throughout history? I mean, basically, most of the worst crimes in human history have been done in the name of God. <laughs> By this conviction of this is the real thing and nothing else. And our tradition doesn't say that. Our tradition doesn't say only Gaudiya Vaishnavism is the unique, the, the only form of truth. Everything else is a waste of time. We don't say that. No. In the first book of our Sampradaya, if we want to consider our Sampradaya, like belonging, be, beginning, if you will, from Mahaprabhu, it's a way of thinking about that. The first book from the Goswamis is Brihad Bhagavatamrita. That beautiful book is, I like it a lot so much. I just finished it, reading it like for, I don't know which time, a few times. And for me, one of the main messages of Brihad Bhagavatamrita is how Gopakumar or Narad Muni, part one, part two, it doesn't matter. They visit so many, they meet so many devotees and they are not thinking, my way is the only way, this is the highest, everyone else is slower, like like criticizing, but they are like actually thinking, oh, this is, a, wow, this is incredible, this is the best. They appreciate that they continue then their journey, but they they give a place to all those conceptions, which not of not all of them are Krishna in Vrindavan, let's say. And Krishna Daska Swami says that beautifully in his Chaitanya Charitamrita. He says, each devotee from other sampradayas and 
each devotee thinks their relationship with Krishna is the best. And each one of them is correct, <laughs> he says. Mm-hmm. No. Like in, in, on a subjective personal level, they will oh, this is the best. No, Yashoda will think, oh, this is the best. But Salya, oh, this is the best. She won't change that for anything else. That's the meaning of stai bhav. Stai means it's fixed. No? no matter if you're exposed to something else, at that level, now we are going to the final part of your question, but at that level, if you're exposed to something else, you have to, this is the best for me. No? Like when, I don't know, Murari Gupta, who is Hanuman, Gorlila, Mahaprabhu was trying to take him to Radha Krishna, Vrindavan. It didn't work because this is the best for me. And, and that's beautiful also. And it's beautiful when you find someone with that faith. <laughs> and that can nourish your own faith. That's what happened in the Brihad Bhagavatamrita. That's for me the perfection of interreligious dialogue. That you meet, I don't know, I, I like to talk with, I don't know, Christians or Sufis. And it's not that after my talk I'm confused about my mm-hmm. own tradition. Or maybe I will stop being a Vaishnava. I'm so disturbed. No, I feel that I'm nourishing my faith as a Vaishnava by witnessing their faith as a Christian. There is a place for that. That's when Gopa Kumar found Hanuman in Brihabhavatamrita. And Gopa Kumar is not trying to preach to Hanuman, like come with come, come to Golok with me. He's telling him, sing the glories of your Lord. That's that's the invitation. Hanuman starts to praise Ram. And at the end, Gopakumar says, Jai Sri Krishna. No? So he's inspired because Gopakumar worships Krishna. So he hears someone else glorifying Ram, and he says, he nour- it nourishes his faith in Krishna. Because of course, Ram and Krishna are the same person. Mm-hmm. And then the opposite, Gop- Hanuman asks Gopakumar, please sing the glories of Krishna. And Gopakumar starts to glorify Krishna, and Hanuman at the end says, Jai Sri Ram. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> so so that's idea. No, we are not trying like to defeat each other in debate, but that's the first part of the question. I want to, to I want to make that point clear that it's not about we feel my tradition is the best or my mood is the best, but from a very personal level, not so much trying to apply that to everyone else. And going to the more specific part of the question, how to know that your particular preference, so to say. It's not just because you were born there. It's it's your religion, so to say. It's your family religion (laughs) and not so much a choice. Of course, in one sense, it's a personal question. And in one sense, we don't know each other enough as to tell you, okay, knowing you for all these years, Mm -hmm. I I maybe, so I, I don't like to sometimes give very conclusive answers to something personal in relation to someone I don't know that much. I think I think that may be dangerous. <laughs> but I've known a few. I remember talking with Nam Rasa, a friend of mine and probably a friend of yours as well, and a few years ago. And I appreciated what he told me because he was basically born also from very from his very early childhood as a devotee. So he told me, well, at one point of my life, I realized, okay. I'm already, I didn't choose to be a devotee, so to say. I'm already born there. <laughs> and I was just going on with the with the waves. But at one point he told me, I felt, now I have to decide for myself if I want to be a devotee or not. 
so for me, that's kind of the difference between the fitting in and belonging part. Like, okay, till now, my parents are devotees, my friends are devotees, whomever I know is a devotee. So it was, so to say, the only option I had, to put it in one way, you know, the only thing I knew, which I'm not saying that's something bad. But it's it's I, I really appreciate that someone gets to question oneself. I don't think that, oh, you have a faith crisis, how you are questioning that you shouldn't be making that question. No, I think like that's great. No. And it doesn't mean that you are about to leave the tradition. It's just that actually you would like to really belong and not just I'm just like casually here, yeah, born into the it's more like a social dynamics no? my family friends <laughs> everyone is going on there so i think it's yeah it requires introspection going to the example that nam rasa gave me it was like well, he he also took his time to expose himself to other social dynamics if you will and see how he will feel and react and do some experiments so to say compare this that to and, and, and return to the practice with voluntary decisions, so to say. I choose to belong. No? Uh, so I, I think that that's basically a way. It's not that I can give you a magical, press this button and you know. No, It will require kind of introspection. No? Introspection. And, and I will say that something important is to take the time to to know the tradition in, in depth, also the teachings, the practices, the depth of it. Because one thing is, okay, being part of the social uh, milieu of the tradition, my parents, the family, I know what's altar, kirtan, but take the time to really learning deeply what does it mean. Because if not, we take for granted all those things. And that's the danger that. Because as a devotee, we are surrounded by everything we are surrounded by is extraordinary. No? Altar is extraordinary, the holy name is extraordinary, Sadhu Sangha, Bhagavatam, everything is extraordinary, but we may get accustomed to those things that are extraordinary. And that's tricky, especially if you were born with that. <laughs> because it's again, it's always there. So it's normal, it's part of, it's familiar. In itself, it's, it's, it's a blessing, of course, no? that you were born in such a family and those beautiful samskar from day one, that's in, in its own self glorious. But yeah, it can have that <laughs> pros and cons, so to say the con, maybe you take that for granted and, and, and you don't really appreciate the extraordinariness of that because it's too familiar. So sometimes for it to not remain too familiar, it's important that we take the time to really dive deep into what does it mean actually to have deity at home? What does, what, what's the holy name about? What's actually sadhusan? And you go deep and study good association and you can, wow, you rediscover your own tradition, so to say. <laughs> You follow it's like wow oh i never I, I never got in touch with this level of depth which is part of the tradition but i needed to wow re rediscover it and that may have to happen a few times it's not that okay once in the lifetime i rediscovered my tradition again that's we began the lecture today it may have to happen every time we feel okay this is no longer relevant or relatable to me how do i continue my journey 
and that's how you pro progress you go deeply and deeply but yeah i really celebrate your question so to say no so it's uh, i mean I, I appreciate the courage to present the question to begin with <laughs> because sometimes people we, we may be feeling that but we may be nervous mm -hmm. about oh but if i ask that question what will the rest think about me and and all, again the very fact that you present the question for me it shows your concern for belonging and not merely fitting in because fitting in will be I will make the question because the environment may not validate me. So I better remain like a Paka, a nice no, second generation devotee. Uh, and that fitting in in itself. So the fact that you are exposing <laughs> your, your willingness to explore and to question these things means you want to belong. Uh, and that's for me already a confirmation that that you belong <laughs> no? at least on some level you can always belong in so many levels so so I, I think it's healthy to to have that type of discernment and openness for me it's not a problem like you are doubting where's what's happening with your faith on the contrary faith has to be has to be nourished by certain healthy doubts no? Mm. Doubt is not a, a danger to faith necessarily. Mm. As I mentioned in my book, the role of the guru sometimes is to create doubts, mm. healthy doubts. Like you are thinking of a, in a certain way about something, but it's a very limited way. But we may be very certain this is the way. So the guru will say something that will make you your head spin. You're like, wow, I never thought that. Wow. Now, now I have a doubt. I'm doubting the way I was understanding the thing, but that's healthy. That's taking you to an, a place of openness mm -hmm. and not so much certainty. Mm -hmm. no, certainty, that's that's the opposite of faith, actually. <laughs> I mentioned that in my book. What's the opposite of faith? Certainty. Not doubt. Doubt can nourish faith. Certainty can be dangerous because you become too convinced I'm certain about everything. So nobody can change your mind. You cannot progress. You are just stuck in your certainty. <laughs> you can become pretty fanatical, <laughs> even a social danger, public danger. <laughs> yeah. If you become very certain about something, and sometimes that happens to be wrong, but you are totally certain, I mean, you can become a serial killer, and you're certain that you are benefiting everyone mm -hmm. i mean most of the people they have to be really convinced about what they are doing so watch out for certainty <laughs> so anyhow appreciate your question question behind there yeah i'm, I'm trying to still formulate it still because coming it was kind of continuing on from prelad's question um and and you were saying that that to continue with the conviction or like if you feel shaky in Krishna consciousness or in your path, that then you have to dive deeper into it. Mm. And that that's, that's the way that you keep going. But is there a point where, it, where it's not useful to continue to keep diving deeper? Like, so my understanding is that you need to come to everything with, with a level of faith and like with a level of open-mindedness. But... I think in this in this path of like trying to 
find where you belong in Krishna consciousness, then it's hard to come to something so open-minded. Is it beneficial at all to step back and explore, in this case, other religions or other or other paths? Mm -hmm. Or is it just worth instead focusing all of that energy into just diving deeper into Krishna consciousness mm -hmm. instead? Well, as you may imagine, my reply will be, it will depend on each case. Mm -hmm. There is no universal formula because depending each case each situation for some it may be beneficial to concentrate on their path and go deep into that for some others there may need to explore something else uh, or for the same person in different stages even <laughs> in my book i mentioned that of course it's recommended before if you are let's say a devotee it's better to first you are relatively grounded in your own practice before you dare to explore other traditions in the sense that it may be too much mm -hmm. no? because if you are not grounded in your own tradition you may get confused by so many other things but at some point if your groundedness someone may feel inspiration to to learn from other traditions some other may not feel that inspiration ever in their journey <laughs> and that's okay now it doesn't mean that oh he's sectarian uh, at some point, he should be engaged in an interfaith dialogue. Not necessarily. So my point is that it's not that there's only one way in which the sequence will happen for every person. Because, again, we are individuals. So each one is with their own journey, with their own combination of samskars and moods and mercy and necessities. So sorry, I cannot be too... No, no, that's correct. I don't like to be like, absolute. okay, this is the way to do it for everyone. One side fits all. For me, that's more like impersonal to give mm -hmm. like an advice like, okay, this is the universal pill. For all of you in the same way, it will work. And the problem is when we feel it's not working for me. No, <laughs> I need some personalized adjustment. Of course, we have this, our universal teachings for all of us, Krishna is the Supreme Personality of God. Because it's not that for me, it's not for you, it is. <laughs> but even that for each of us will be different, no? We will experience the supreme personality of God in a very unique way as we talk. So everything ultimately is radically personal. But as you mentioned in the beginning, in some because what what I say was it's good to go deep into your tradition, not so much when you are shaking your faith. I, my point was when you want to make the difference between I'm just belonging to a social dynamics where I'm fitting in with that or belonging deeply. So for me, that doesn't mean your faith is shaky, mm -hmm. just in case. Um, but if someone feels that one's faith is shaky, again, there are so many things that may need to be done depending the case. Going deep into the tradition may help. But I understand that sometimes there's it's not a moment to just go deep, 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 deep. Mm -hmm. And one may need to... Sometimes one may need to heal other type of departments, so to mm -hmm. say, as I was saying before. No? Mm -hmm. In some cases, I've, I've, I've seen devotees coming with a very unresolved human past. And I don't feel that the best thing to tell them is just like lock yourself in, up in your room and chant three lakhs per day, mm -hmm. no? yeah. 300 rounds. In, mm -hmm. Increase the number. Mm -hmm. I've seen that sometimes. I have this problem, chant more rounds. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that may not be the solution. Mm -hmm. 
sometimes solution is something very different. Something is just let's talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe I don't have to tell you too much. Maybe that person just needs to be heard mm -hmm. and needs to express and needs mm -hmm. to be re feel received and not judged mm -hmm. by the other. And I that's that's my contribution mm -hmm. because sometimes we have this idea. I have to preach to the person and quote the Bhagavatam and tell all the right things and set him straight, whatever our idea is. And sometimes, no, I have to learn to just be there, present with the other person, make the other person feel, oh, I'm accompanied, I'm supported, I'm listened to. And that sometimes is more transformational than quoting the whole Bhagavad Gita but by heart to the other person. <laughs> You follow. So it may take different forms. Uh, and it, in its own way, that's going deeper also, no? but not maybe going deeper in the idea we may think, not like mm -hmm. chant trip, trip times more rounds, memorize five more verses, fast for one week, whatever. Sometimes we conceive all in increasing of a, of a number. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes the depth we need is of another type. We all need depth at all moments, but it's not always the same type of depth. Sometimes a form of depth will be just sharing humanly in a very open, vulnerable way. And that will be as, as revealing as some other revelations we may receive in the middle of a kirtan. And a, I mean, I, I can talk for myself. I've had one of the biggest epiphanies in my life, just sharing with someone very casually, informally, but totally deeply and unexpectedly was not in my agenda. I was like, wow, feeling that the other person is totally present, hearing me, receiving me, not judging me. And I can really like, again, be myself, <laughs> be accepted with all my messiness. I have messiness, by the way. I'm a sannyasi, but I have messiness, no? You have no superhero here in front of you. <laughs> and I don't want to be a superhero, just in case. So, yeah. So that, that's another type of depth. So I think it's important that we kind of, like, how to say, you know, are open to conceive there are different ways to be deep in our practice, to go deep in our practice. And, and each situation, each person, each stage will require a particular depth. And, and it's, it's good that we are open to that and not just impose this is the only depth way of going deep possible. And that can that can create more trauma, more complexity. <laughs> yeah. I hope that helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. <laughs> Thank you very much. So anyhow, just we have a few minutes, just a few more words to conclude. Still nobody biting each other. So, still <laughs> <we're here. laughs> so yeah, it's important. Again, I will say that to belong, of course, to feel that we belong somewhere. Uh, I think it's important that also we begin by understanding that we are somehow worthy of belonging. No? There is something intrinsic in us that is worthy of belonging. Because if you, to begin with, think I'm not worthy of that, you will never belong anywhere. <laughs> so first we have to, to have that. Now we have to really, how to say, receive. As I mentioned before, Krishna is already loving you unconditionally. Krishna is already accepting you, allowing you to belong. But you have to receive that. If you cannot receive that, you cannot give that to others. Mm -hmm. 
if you cannot receive with an open heart, you cannot give with an open heart because you can only give what you have first received. No? And I, sometimes it's difficult to receive. <laughs> it sounds it sounds simple, but no, no, it's sometimes it's difficult for us to al allow ourselves to be fully accepted and fully loved. But that's very, very important. No? Uh, to accept ourselves. Again, for me, this is not false ego. This is not arrogance. This is just a basic human balance situation. Because sometimes we don't accept ourselves. And we are burst. We will tell, I mean, we may tell things to others, but generally we tell things to ourselves that we will never tell to others. Mm -hmm. no? <laughs> you follow me? <laughs> we tell things to others, but generally we, we reserve, we save this, the heaviest one for ourselves many times. Mm -hmm. And we bring the whip and we start the whip festival. <laughs> and all that can happen sometimes in the name of humility. And, I, and it may not be humility. It may be pretty dysfunctional mm -hmm. and evasive. And, uh, it still is my ego in the center with another form, uh, with whip at hand, so to say. No? Mm -hmm. so, so it's important that we learn to accept ourselves in the sense, again, not from an egocentric perspective, but Krishna is already accepting me fully. So if he's accepting me fully, I have to learn to accept myself in connection to how he's accepting me. That's humbling. <clears throat> if you properly embrace that, that's completely humbling and moving. So in that connection, personally, just to try to make some full circle to what we talked at the beginning, I'm going for a minute to my personal experience after a few things that happened, not only to me personally, but I felt reflected into certain dynamics in the community at large. We felt, okay, I need to address some issues, personal and communal, so I can belong to Krishna consciousness. Because I want to belong. I don't want to fit in. I want to remain in this movement for the right reasons. Because I mentioned that in my books, you can belong to a movement, belong, quote unquote, <laughs> for the wrong reasons. You can stay as a Vaishnav just out of interest, status quo, position, benefits, perks, fame, name, whatever. I remain externally card carrying member, <laughs> but internally, where is my heart? No? So, so it's important that we learn to, yeah, the challenge is to stay always belong deeply for the right reasons so i'll i'll share one section from my book just to conclude maybe for those who read it i read it the other day in switzerland i it, i came to a point and i question, mentioned that in the introduction to my book i was like okay i, I of course i want to remain as a gold Vaishnava, but there are a few things not in the essence of the tradition but in the current state of the communities and in general, and with this, I'm not pointing to any group, to any person, to things that happen more here, less there, but they are there, even in other traditions. So I felt, okay, there are some few things that I'm seeing that many people, make many people leave the tradition. And I don't want those things to make me leave the tradition, so I need to address them so I can belong to the tradition. I'm not just fitting while all that stuff is still there and I'm not doing anything about that. So I wrote in the introduction to my book a list of 10 points called Why Not to Stay as a Gaudiya Vaishnava. 
And again, with this, I'm not promoting people leaving the tradition. Uh, because then comes the list why to stay as a Gaudi Vaishnava, just in case. And I remain here as a Gaudi Vaishnava. <laughs> but I mentioned that list just to make, to highlight certain things that, in my opinion, are like, unless I have, at least my personal opinion, unless I address this as much as I can, I cannot belong to my tradition fully. So I will read them quickly, if, if you allow me. I mean, each point deserves a separate lecture, <laughs> as you may feel. But it says like this. Why not to stay as a Gaudi Vaishnava? And again, this observe observing certain patterns on a communal level, not speaking of the essence of the tradition. First, lack of human sensibility and psychological balance. Second, tribal thinking, institutionalism, and various types of fundamentalism. Three, unaddressed abuse of different types. Four, deep cognitive rigidity and poor capacity for dynamic dialogue. Five, not enough appreciation for other mystical schools. Six, not enough appreciation for other forms of non-mystical knowledge, like secular disciplines, like psychologies, and so on. Seven, chauvinism, institutional patriarchy, and other forms of discrimination. Eight, disjointed relationship with matter, especially with one's physical body and its various needs. Nine, toxic nostalgia for past achievements and unwillingness to deal with the modern world's paradigms. 10, over-idealized emphasis on proselytism. Mm -hmm. That's my list. <laughs> and then the first point of the next list, just for you to not get discouraged and desperate, why to stay as a Gaudi Vaishnava? The first point is because the above 10 reasons for not staying are not part of the actual doctrine of our tradition, mm -hmm. but rather the result of an immature understanding and application of it. So that gives some hope. <laughs> <laughs> we have some work to do, but yes. I was just wondering, uh, number four. Let's go back. Yeah, of course. Number four. Let me see. Where's one second? Number four, number four. One, two, three, four. Deep cognitive rigidity and poor capacity for dynamic dialogue. That one. So cognitive rigidity, like cognitive has to do with thinking patterns, and rigidity means rigidity, basically. So a little bit, it's another way of saying narrow-mindedness. And poor capacity for dynamic dialogue for me it's like again with this i'm not pointing at one group one person but a general thing dynamic dialogue for me is like to talk about things outside of the box <laughs> outside mm -hmm. of certain ways we used to talk about things mm -hmm. and that may need to be talked about in a different way with different words from different contexts mm -hmm. we are in different times <laughs> uh uh and sometimes I've seen that there's, there's some poor capacity for that, that when, when we attempt to have those conversations, this cognitive rigidity comes with like, like very formula-like like statements, and that's it. You know? Like sometimes I've heard, and you may have heard, Srila Prabhupada say it, mm -hmm. which I love what Srila Prabhupada said. <laughs> but he said so many things. <laughs> And for me, the most important question is, what will Srila Prabhupada be saying? In the sense, of course, some things will be saying the same. You know, he says, Krishna is God. 
I'm sure he will continue saying the same thing. He will be in this room with us. But I'm sure some other things he say, he will he won't be saying the same thing. And of course, some might say, well, but how do we know he's not here saying those things to us? We are supposed to say those things. That's parampara. <laughs> and that's the challenge and the commitment. Like we are to represent the spirit of our previous acharyas, to be so aligned with their inner spirit and mood that we are capable of saying those things that he will be saying at present. Uh, but how do you know if you're going off the wall with what you're, with what you're saying? If, if you're actually in line with the parampara, with, with representing a, a particular, how things should change or how things would be better this way, how do you know if you're Well, if you're, in line? I mean, if you're sincerely trying to serve the parampara, to sincerely honor, if you know the teaching and you have a, a heart in the right place, your mind in the right place, that's how you know, and Krishna will confirm. And that doesn't mean that there won't be problems or opposition, okay. no? just in case, because sometimes we measure, okay, if everyone's agree, I'm doing it right. That's not generally the standard, probably the opposite. <laughs> oh, and yeah. you sometimes say something that is truth. Sometimes the world won't celebrate truth. No? You study the life of most prophets. I mean, they were not precisely glorified. They were killed, persecuted ostracized many times, mm -hmm. <laughs> misunderstood. Uh, that's the price for living in truth. No? In one sense, we are not in Golok Vrindavan, so truth mm -hmm. is not popular, so mm -hmm. to say. Mm -hmm. no? so, so we need to get across, because, you know. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, not to, to force that and to do it, in mm -hmm. a, but but we should be willing to to enter into that spirit to honor with our if you analyze, I don't know, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswatagur, he was so strong and he criticized his mm -hmm. own tradition so much mm -hmm. because he loved his tradition so much. Mm -hmm. If you have life of Jesus, he criticized his own mm -hmm. tradition from tip to toe. Mm -hmm. But he was the one who was representing it in, in, in such a pure mm -hmm. way. So you see the pattern, no? Mm -hmm. So having taken these stances doesn't mean oh, you are losing your faith. You're about to leave the tradition. No, no. You are leaving, leaving, not leaving the tradition. No? <laughs> That's different. So I would say, yeah, if you are rightly situated with the heart in the right place, understanding, have proper knowledge, Krishna will make it clear in your heart that you are in the right place. And of course, it's healthy that you remain open to maybe I'm not in the right place. No? Again, certainty, it's a problem. So I will say it's open, it's always healthy and sobering to have a certain dose of, I'm not sure if I'm doing the right, I, I'm doing the right thing and try to open and pray and have feedback also. Have some peer review, so to say, of people that may say, hey, you know, <laughs> or at least challenge your point, ask you about it and maybe interact. Because of course, if you if you are the only, your only point of reference, that may be like, Difficult to know how to know. Hmm. Yes. It's just uh, building off of this conversation. <clears throat> um, how can you tell if anyone's qualified enough to make those decisions? Because that's one of the main issues we're mm -hmm. struggling with now. Mm -hmm. and, um, wouldn't it be safer to just stick with what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said rather than because that was the issue with a lot of other religions, like with Christianity? A lot of things were changed. A lot of the rules were manipulated. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I say manipulated, but what I mean is it was changed 
to suit whoever was living that tradition at that moment mm -hmm. and so wouldn't it be safer to just uh maintain what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said otherwise we'd just be adhering to the public eye or the public opinion like in a hundred years time the public opinion will have changed so much and then would we follow this to suit everyone else who we're preaching to mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's a bit of a weird question. No, 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 no. Why? No, no, that's not weird. If that's weird, I love to be weird. <laughs> <laughs> the point is that you say, for example, uh, should we stick with what Mahaprabhu said? And again, my question will be, will Mahaprabhu be saying every same thing he said 500 years ago now? He will be coming right now, knocking your door. Well, he, of course, again, I'm not saying he will change the Maha Mantra and things like that, but there are different things that Mahaprabhu said. I mean, he didn't just say two words. <laughs> and many things he said also were speaking to a particular time, place, and circumstance. I mean, his whole sannyas is, I mean, not the whole sannyas, there's an esoteric side to his sannyas. That's another conversation, but his accepting of sannyas was very much in consideration of the times he was living in. He accepted sannyas from impersonalist life because he considered that will give more impact and position to my situation too. But probably being now in this particular time, Mahaprabhu is coming, probably he will see, oh, this sannyas have done so much mess that the last thing I will do is to accept sannyas. <laughs> because sometimes I was talking with a sannyasi friend of mine that some years ago where like, Okay, Bhakti Siddhanta Thakur, he he stopped the, the, the Babaji giving because there were some Babajis who were misrepresenting that order. He established sannyas. And we were talking with my sannyasi friend, and we are sannyasi for decades. I have nothing against being a sannyasi. But we were like, well, but now so many sannyasis misbehave that probably we have to bring Babaji order back. <laughs> because I've heard many times. I, there comes Maharaj, oh, another sannyasi. Mm -hmm. I was like, oops. <laughs> How favorable is that? For Like going back to why Mahaprabhu accepted sannyasi, you follow my point. Yeah. So there is a relativity to the things and, and the spirit of parampara also. The point is that among the things that Mahaprabhu talked is, of course, the establishing of parampara. And parampara is a dynamic system. It's not that every member says the same thing as the previous one. There has to be, like, not only adjustment in the language we use to the times we are living, but also there has to be new realizations, new insights. It's not that there's only one level of insight that gave Krishna, Krishna gave original, that's it. So, and I, nonetheless, I understand your point, and, and I know that there are so many in different movements, like, let's go back to the roots, so to say, and let's stay loyal there. But for me, the roots, <laughs> I I'm, I'm not, have nothing else with the roots, but the roots are can continue flourishing. It's not only roots, but it's, <laughs> there are flowers and fruits and so many things that can come. And I don't think that adjusting details or adjusting things, I mean, Prabhupada adjusted a few number of things when he came to the West. And I wouldn't say he amputated the tradition, something like that, no? He was actually showing his 
compassion and his genius and his sensitivity to to see which was the unique how to say <laughs> constellation he was facing i mean he was in another planet imagine if you lived in brindavan in india at that time no internet not nothing to know too much what's going on and suddenly you land in united states it's like taking a spaceship and going to saturn or something no? so he was also experimenting he himself was saying he was trying how it works so let's see 64 round not 32 not 16 okay let's and it's okay that's part of the sensitivity of the pure devotee according to the times and the point is he acted in certain way for those times that's 60 years ago the world changed considerably so although we chant the same mantra if you will some other things may need to continue to be adjusted but adjusting doesn't mean we are watering down the tradition we are deviating from the roots it means tra tradition are also has to have their flexibility their ad adaptation in order to survive I don't want to sound too darwinian but survival of the fittest <laughs> and fittest means not the strongest means the one who learns how to adapt so so what Mahaprabhu said is perfect, but Mahaprabhu said many things and he was very dynamic. <laughs> and what the Goswami said in relation to what Mahaprabhu said already had some elaboration and the following acharyas say something more and the idea is that that will have to continue mm -hmm. happening. And yes, we may say there is the risk of misrepresentation and deviation, yes. And that will happen. Krishna says in the Gita, Yogonashta Param Tapa, and so on. He says, in time, tradition gets lost, and I have to come again to reestablish it. I mean, I'm not saying that to just, okay, we'll get lost, so don't, don't matter so much. Okay, it happens. I'm not saying that, but also I'm saying it happens. So when it happens, we have to also accept that it may happen. Krishna is saying that in the Gita. I'm not creating that myself. Sometimes those things happen. So we were talking the other day. Sometimes there may be certain aspects of our community or tradition that are we are trying to repair them. <laughs> and sometimes we have tried to repair them too much. It has too much sticking tape. And it's just like collapsing. And we may need that to die and be reborn instead of just repairing. Sometimes we need to repair. Sometimes we need to allow something to go back to, to the earth, so to say, and allow that to appear in a new way, which we may not know what that is. So that's part also of the of the process of the, how the things come, no? birth, growth, rebirth, no? and so on. The essence of Gaudiya Vaishnavism remains alive, eternal, but the shape it takes, it will take different forms. If you study Gaudiya Vaishnavism, Bhakti Nautag, that's also nice. I like that too. And with this, I'm, I'm concluding. Uh, if you study, I don't know, historically speaking, you travel in time, which is a very nice exercise, so not to take your own perspective too seriously only. <laughs> and how Gaudiya Vaishnavism was experienced in Bhaktivinoda Thakur's time, which was the audience he faced. Then travel a little bit more, Bhaktisiddhanta, then go to Prabhupada. There are very different scenarios, and they make different adjustments, each of them. 
and they are showing we are supposed to continue doing the same. Mm -hmm. Adjustments doesn't mean compromising. It means actually going deeper, <laughs> going deeper. Well, being honoring our tradition, our acharas, our teachers, our origins. As I said before in the beginning, the essence of the tradition is eternal and is ever unfolding. So it's not that Krishna consciousness is only one thing, but it's always evolving. So how much we are representing that, connected to that, that's the present. That's a question every generation has to ask themselves. How do I practice Krishna consciousness in this life, in this generation? How do I represent that? Not only to the world, it's not just about find a proper language as a preaching strategy, but how do you speak about your own tradition in a way that is relatable to you? Mm -hmm. Sometimes some words may need to change. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Gaudi glossary may need to be adjusted. Sometimes there are words that are have been misused and abused, and they need to be replaced. I don't. I don't like. I don't like the word non-devotee, for example. I don't use it. It's for me. It sounds like it, it's it's loaded with his generational implications. A few decades of being used in a certain way to point to whomever is not a Vaishnava. But for me, St. Francis of Assisi, he's such a devotee. He's not a Gaudiya Vaishnava devotee, but he's a devotee. I wouldn't dare to call him a non-devotee. <laughs> but if you use the term to refer to whomever is not of my tribe as a non-devotee, that's creating that template. The ones who are not in my tribe are not devotees. And of course, then the question comes, how much of a devotee you are to begin with? <laughs> because there is still some non-devotee part in me. No, so and things like that. No, karmi, that's eliminated from my glossary decades ago. Karmi. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not saying. However, it, it may have started being used in a more healthy way, but in time, those usages gets a little bit like too, like distorted and and, and very partial and and again, karmi means you are engaged in fruitive action. I'm not fully free from that. Mm -hmm. So first I have to address the karmi portion in me before like labeling. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying the things, no? it, something so simple as words. <laughs> Which words you use and what do you mean by those words? Sometimes we may need to stop and upgrade and update big part of our glossary and, and that's part of parampara again and we are to do that no, we are not just going to expect my guru has to do all that uh, and, and i understand your question no it's not like okay can everyone be a a prophet and revolutionize the whole tradition i'm not saying oh i came off three days before I, I came first time to the temple or you are in charge of no the representation of Gaudiya Vaishnavism in the world now don't say that to a three-day devotee, you will kill him. <laughs> but in time, we have a commitment to, 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 the, to the school we belong. I mean, we are supposed to represent it, and it's, it's nice that we do not become we do not become too, too complacent, like comfort zone. Oh, my guru will do everything, proper will do everything, and that's a false sense of humility. I'm so fallen, I cannot do anything. So I'm just here. Mm -hmm. There are different other forms of humility. 
So what commitment I can take? Well, what's my contribution to Krishna consciousness? Because if I don't have any contribution, then I didn't come here to serve. <laughs> I'm coming to take. No, that's not the idea. We may begin with that idea, but eventually, hopefully, we understand I'm supposed to do a contribution. So if I'm honest and sincere, also, I will hopefully not come with a very strange idea that is way beyond my adhikar, my capacity. But from whatever we are, I think all of us are invited to to offer, to do some offering, to do some contribution with our thoughts, with our feelings, with our capacity, with our ideas, with our example. Uh, it's not that only the sannyasis have to do that, only the gurus have to do that, because that's also disempowering you. No? If you yourself convince yourself of that, that's not only lazy, but disempowering. <laughs> what to speak if others are telling you that, don't. I will say, don't accept that. If I'm telling you, only we can reform this movement. You don't have any voice and you don't have any criteria. You are not gurus and sanya. I, mean, I will pass you a torch at that moment to engage in some, like when Mahaprabhu went to the Cassiers. <laughs> so each of you have a voice. No? Each of you have your contribution to make your individuality, your uniqueness, and, and, and the challenge or the invitation more than a challenge to offer your unique voice and sincerity as a beautiful flower offering, so to say, at the feet of Radha and Krishna. No? It may take time to discover which, what's my contribution. It's okay. We are in the process of discovering that, but it's I think it's healthy to, to give ourselves permission to, to offer some, to participate. Again, that's belonging. <laughs> If you want to participate in Krishna consciousness, you have to feel that you are a part of Krishna consciousness, not a part, no, a part. If I'm a part, I have a commitment. I have something to offer. And, and I want to think about it. I want to pray about it. And I want to be open to see what, what can I offer. It's not just wash the pots. I mean, that's beautiful. That was my first service and I love to do it. <laughs> But it's not my point, it's about only doing stuff externally, but how to offer again my own individuality, my own feelings and needs and everything. So anyhow, some words. Thank you so much for your presence and for your questions and for your company and friendship and invitation. It's so very happy, very humble to be here in the presence of all of you and hope to see you these days if you have time we will mm -hmm. having a few other meetings it will be oh, my yeah. good fortune to mm -hmm. to continue sharing so on saturday just across here there's a green behind us it's just across here in uh lucerne hello community center thank 